Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. Acts chapter 20. I want to speak the Lord being our helper on the shepherd as the protector and provider of the sheep. Now this passage in Acts chapter 20, as you know, is Paul's farewell sermon to the elders at the church at Ephesus. And we spent a good bit of time last time that we were together on verses 17 to 27, in which Paul presents himself as the exemplary pastor. He himself is an example of what shepherds should be. We usually don't think of Paul as a pastor. We usually think of Paul as a theologian or an evangelist. But here we see his pastor's heart. He loved the people of God at Ephesus. And he threw himself into laboring for their benefit. Paul models sacrificial ministry. He was totally devoted to serving Jesus Christ. Paul was not a half-hearted Christian. He was all in, lock, stock, and barrel, hook, line, and sinker. The Apostle Paul was totally devoted to the cause of Christ. He spent his life serving the Lord. You know, that's so contrary to the way many people think today, even many clerics or pastors. They see ministry as a career path, or they see it as an addendum to the other things that really matter in life. Church is sort of added on as, you know, something that's important, but it's not the priority. But the Apostle Paul hazarded his life for the cause of Christ. In fact, listen to what he says in verses 22 and 23. And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save, that is, except that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me, but none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. I dare say that kind of language is strange and foreign in our day to day. He said, I don't count my life dear to myself. Can you say that? Can I say that this morning? That my life is not my own? That I belong to Christ and therefore the apostle says, whatever happens to me, it really is no matter to me at all. I want to finish the calling that the Lord has placed on my life. I want to finish my course with joy. So whatever happens when I go to Jerusalem, even if I end up in jail, he said, in every city, I know this, that bonds and afflictions abide me. Besides that, I don't know what to expect, but I only want to finish my course with joy, and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus. Oh, my friends, for total dedication to Christ, that's the great need of the hour today. Now, this morning, I want us to move into the 28th verse and notice that he says, Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. 
Paul sees a spiritual and supernatural component in matchmaking pastors and flocks together. And he says, you have a commission from the Holy Spirit to superintend the church of God and to feed the church, to shepherd the flock, which he hath purchased with his own blood. They're the Lord's flock. He's purchased them, but you have been commissioned, Paul says to these elders, to shepherd, to feed the church. Now, I want us to notice in the 29th verse this morning that he says, for I know this. Now, we just mentioned that he didn't know what would happen to him in the future. I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem not knowing. Here's something he doesn't know. I don't know what the future holds for me, but he does know this. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. And Paul charges these Ephesian pastors to guard and protect the Lord's church against the many dangers that threaten them, dangers that he calls grievous or ravenous wolves. Sheep as you may know, are vulnerable to many predators. I like to watch sometimes Alaska, the last frontier. Maybe some of you have seen it with the Atsley brothers. These guys are the original homesteaders, and they have cattle. And up there, one of the dangers for their grazing cattle is wolves. Now, we don't ordinarily see many wolves around here. We see every once in a while some coyotes. But wolves were very common in the Middle East and in places like Alaska today. And a wolf is a great threat to livestock. Sheep, of course, are defenseless. They have no particular skills to protect themselves. In fact, they're often not even aware of the danger that they're in because they're focused on grazing. They certainly are not fleet of foot. They don't have sharp teeth to bear against a potential predator. Sheep are often weighted in such a way that they can't elude a potential predator. They're easy prey to wolves. And the pastor is commissioned to be a spiritual sentry to keep watch over the sheep. In his book, The Minister as Shepherd, Charles Jefferson compared a pastor's responsibility to protect the flock to an eastern shepherd's duty. Listen to this description. He says the eastern shepherd was, first of all, a watchman. It was his business to keep a wide open eye, constantly searching the horizon for the possible approach of foes. He was bound to be circumspect and attentive. Vigilance was a cardinal virtue. An alert wakefulness was for him a necessity. He could not indulge in fits of drowsiness, for the foe was always near. Only by his alertness could the enemy be circumvented. There were many kinds of enemies, Mr. Jefferson says, all of them terrible, each in a different way. Swift action was necessary when floods arose at a certain season of the year and streams became quickly swollen and overflowed their banks. There were enemies also of a more subtle kind, he says, animals rapacious and treacherous, lions, bears, hyenas, jackals, and wolves. 
There were enemies in the air, huge birds of prey were always soaring aloft, ready to swoop down on a lamb or a kid. And then most dangerous of all were the human birds and beasts of prey, robbers, bandits, men who made a business of robbing sheepfolds and of murdering shepherds. The Eastern world was full of perils. It teemed with forces hostile to the shepherd and to his flock. Indeed, my friends, that's the imagery the apostle uses here when he tells the elders at Ephesus that I won't ever see you again. So after my departure, I know that grievous wolves are going to attack the flock. And one of the great needs of the hour today for pastors or shepherds is to know the times, like the men of Issachar were men that had an understanding of the times so that they could guide Israel in what to do. You see, my friends, we need men who are wise, who understand the dangers that threaten the Lord's children today. And Paul says grievous wolves. The word grievous means savage and feral. Paul knew that after his departure, the church was in for some hard times. My beloved, we are living in the aftermath of Paul's apostolic ministry, aren't we? Some 2,000 years, and I dare say the challenges from both the outside and the inside. For he goes on to say, also of your own self shall men arise, speaking perverse things. Because the church is constantly in danger of assault, both from this unbelieving world and from within. For the devil knows if he can get in the church and confuse people's minds or foment an attitude of pride and self-concern that will destroy a church's testimony, then he scored a strategic victory. Because the church faces these dangers, we need shepherds who are courageous to protect the flock. Men who will stand up in a very courageous way of deep personal conviction and preach the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth of God. Now Paul's prophecy here that I know after my departure grievous wolves shall enter in not sparing the flock, his prophecy came true. For Timothy, who was left at Ephesus, we read these words in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and the 6th verse. Some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. Notice in verse 3 of 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says, I besought thee to abide at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia. And I left you there in Ephesus, Paul says to Timothy, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. And Paul says, Timothy, you're going to encounter some people that desire to be teachers of the law, but they don't understand what they say, nor whereof they affirm. And that's a terrible description for somebody that wants to preach, not knowing what he's saying and not understanding what his purpose is. But Paul says, Timothy, I've, I've left you there because you will have to address a threat to the church's stability. In verses 19 and 20 of 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says, Timothy, I commit a charge to you that you would hold faith. That means stand firm and a good conscience, not just protect the truth, but Timothy Live in such a way that you have a clear conscience. 
which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck, and he names two of them here, two men of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've delivered unto Satan, Paul says, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, evidently, there was a rhetorical controversy that was being promoted by false teachers in the church at Ephesus that was having the effect of confusing the people. 2 Timothy chapter 2, he talks about that in verses 17 to 19 when he speaks of the men that preached that the resurrection was past already and they overthrew the faith of some. Paul says, Timothy, you're going to have to deal with some grievous wolves that will enter in among you, not sparing the flock. And by the way, the Lord Jesus has issued this same warning during his ministry. You may know that in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, Jesus says in the seventh chapter, verse 15, Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Now he says they look like sheep, but on the inside they are rapacious wolves. And he goes on to say you shall know them by their fruits. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit, he says, is hewn down, cast into the fire, wherefore by their fruits you shall know them. Now, I think you know, don't you, that we shouldn't just swallow every idea that comes down the pike. We shouldn't just credulously embrace an idea because somebody looks like a preacher or looks like an expert. You're wise enough to know that discernment is crucial in this world because the devil is sowing his lies, his tares of lies everywhere that God has sown wheat. You turn on your television and you say, well, look, there's a church service. Now, we're not a cult. And I'm not going to say that you're forbidden from reading books or listening to preachers that are not of our tradition. I'm not going to limit your exposure to the outside world. That's what a cult does. It doesn't trust the people to be wise and to make their own judgments. And of course, that would be safer to just you know, say, you only listen to my sermons, and you only read my literature, and, and you stay away from everything else. But my beloved, who has the energy to affect that? And it's not honorable. We are not lords over your faith, says Paul, but we are helpers of your joy. The pastor does not micromanage the lives of the Lord's people and tell them who and what they can listen to. And most of you, if I did that, most of you would probably resist it, and rightly so. But at the same time, my friends, it's important for you and I to understand that everybody that presents himself or herself as an expert in any subject in this world is not necessarily governed by godly motives. And it doesn't mean that every idea is equally plausible. There is a spirit of tolerance in our country that says that people have the right to believe what they want to believe. But that doesn't mean that every idea is equally plausible. You understand that, don't you? So prove all things and then hold fast to that which is good. In other words, put every idea to which you're exposed to the biblical test. That's my counsel to you this morning, dear friends, and then embrace that which meets the test. 
Now, I'm a thoroughgoing Primitive Baptist, and I'm confident that there is truth and integrity and genuine piety among the old Baptist people. That doesn't mean that I don't listen every once in a while to some fellow on the television or on the radio that's not in our tradition. But you know, the best advice is to eat the chicken and throw away the bones. <laughs> because there will be something good, but there will be something that you have to discard. And so, Paul tells the Ephesian elders, some of these people that are coming in have sinister motives. Their message is not consistent with the apostolic gospel, and their motives are to destroy the flock. Grievous wolves shall enter in among you, not sparing the flock. And Jesus teaches the same thing. Matthew 7, 15 again, he says, beware of false prophets. Anytime a preacher starts ranting against other teachers and ministers, there's always a pause because we think, well, what are your motives? Are you saying that all of them are counterfeits and imposters? And I'm the only one, you know, like Tigger. I'm the only one. No, we're not saying that this morning. But there are people out there, my friends, who are spreading dangerous ideas. In fact, Jesus says, they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly have heart problems. They are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. Later in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, verse 24, Jesus says, in the last days there shall arise false Christs. Now the word false indicates that they're not legitimate. They lack integrity and false prophets, and they shall show great signs and wonders. Some of these fellows will be able to do magic tricks, like Pharaoh's magicians in Egypt. You say, I've watched these healing services, and they were just amazing. Well, a lot of that is staged, to be honest with you. A lot of that is prescripted. You know, I've often wondered why these faith healers don't go to the hospitals and nursing homes to ply their trade instead of, you know, big arenas. But anyway, they shall show great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. I want to say this morning that one of the most important things that you can maintain is your understanding of the truth and the word of God. Deception will wreck a person's life because ideas have consequences. So just be discerning is all I'm saying. Proverbs says it like this, the simple believe every word, but a prudent man looks well to his going. And by the way, there are these warnings against false teachers, not only from Jesus and from Paul, as we noted in Acts chapter 20, grievous wolves are going to come in, not sparing the flock. But even Peter, listen to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. There were false prophets among the people, he said, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily or privately shall bring in damnable heresies. Now he uses some pretty strong language there to talk about the things they're teaching. And he calls them not alternate ideas that are plausible, but he calls them damnable heresies even denying the Lord that bought them. And they will bring upon themselves swift destruction, and many shall follow their pernicious ways. Now, the majority is not always right. In fact, the majority is seldom right. The Bible tells us that few are on the narrow way, and many are on the broad way. Many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. Now, that's what Peter says about it. 
Paul says in 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen, Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Is it any wonder then that his ministers will appear as ministers of righteousness? You know, the devil seldom appears with horns and a pitchfork in a bright red suit. He usually appears as a, a very articulate anchor person or a keynote speaker at a conference or a seminar leader. And just because there are imposters and charlatans and religious fakes and phonies in positions like that does not mean that everybody in that position is fake. But the point that I make is the same as Paul made. Therefore, watch, verse 31 of our text. Watch and remember that by the space of three years, I cease not to warn every one of you night and day. The word watch means be on your guard. Good pastors must be vigilant to protect the sheep from doctrinal predators that promote false teaching. Titus chapter 1 and the ninth verse, another pastoral epistle to the two letters that he wrote to Timothy, puts it very poignantly. The bishop of God must be sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Notice the double duty of the pastor. On the positive side, he's to exhort, that is to encourage. He's to feed the sheep by teaching the truth. And notice the negative side. He's to protect from wolves by warning the sheep from errors, to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. He's to teach the truth and he's to refute error. Now, we're living in a day in which people say, never be negative. They claim it's a professional sin to be negative in the pulpit. And I grant you, it's, I don't like polemics. I don't like arguments. I don't like debates. For the most part, we want people to accentuate the positive and eliminate the negative and not to mess with Mr. In-Between. But you know, it's impossible to proclaim the truth without also exposing error. And I never call names just to try to put somebody down. I don't like that proud attitude that says, I, we know and nobody else does. I don't like that. But at the same time, it doesn't mean, dear friends, that everybody is on the same page we are. So I'm trying to thread the needle. I'm trying to walk the tightrope this morning of encouraging you to be discerning. And as a pastor, it's my job to preach the whole counsel of God and when we do that, we're necessarily going to say this is right, and sometimes we're going to have to say that means the opposite is wrong and to be avoided, okay? Now notice these wolves will come from two sources in our text, from the outside. Grievous wolves shall enter in from the outside, not sparing the flock. And I want to say that the church today faces many dangers from pop culture around us. There are so many philosophies today that are anti-God, anti-Christian, unbiblical, like secularism. Secularism and materialism is the idea that only what we can see and understand around us is reality. That reality is limited to the material world and that what matters is the here and now. There's no pie in the sky by and by, the secularist says. And by the way, that influences people. I notice in our congregation, my friends, that it's easy for people to get caught up in the rat race. To start thinking that only material things are important and our souls are famished 
while our lives are busy with sports and entertainment and careers and houses and lands, and I know that there's a place for life in a real world, but at the same time, it's not to take priority over our spiritual lives. What did Jesus say in Matthew 6.33? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things shall be added unto you. We get our priorities out of whack very easily. One of the dangers from the outside is this world influences God's people with this mentality that doesn't factor God into the equation. You know, that's what the book of Ecclesiastes teaches when it speaks of life under the sun. Life under the sun is simply living your life without ever considering the one who is above the sun. And so many people get up in the morning and they go about their day and they never think about God. They never pray. They never read his book. And the whole idea that there's something more important than the here and now is foreign to them. That's a threat. And pastors need to preach against worldliness. Worldliness is still public enemy number one to the people of God. John said, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, these are not of the Father, but are of this world. That's 1 John 2.15. Paul said in Romans 12.2, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your minds. In other words, instead of being molded into the world's shape, squeezed into its mold, he says, you be different from the world around you. That's basically what discipleship is all about. A Christian is somebody who lives his life in this world by the standards of the next world. He knows he's just a pilgrim and a stranger here. And therefore, the great challenge in our lives, like Daniel models for us in Daniel chapter 1, is that he would not defile himself with the king's meat. He purposed in his heart that he would cleave to the Lord. Indeed, my friends, that's so vitally important. Another danger from the outside to the church today is atheistic philosophy. By the way, atheism has become militant in the last 20 or 30 years. Since Richard Dawkins and to Christopher Hitchens and some of these fellows have become more popular in intellectual circles, atheism is no longer the Madeline Murray O'Hare's that are seen as oddballs and crackpots, you know, on the fringe. Atheism is mainstream in our media-focused world today. It's everywhere. And increasingly, more and more young people are boldly claiming to be atheists. And if they're not that courageous, they say, well, I'm an agnostic. I'm just not sure whether there is a God. I was interested to watch an interview of a religious organization that was out interviewing college students, and, uh, and one of them said, do you believe in God? And this young lady says, uh, uh, well, I really don't anymore. I was raised to believe in him, but I, uh, I, I believe now that, you know, I see everything more clearly, and I don't really think that God exists. And as soon as she said that, she spontaneously threw her hands over her head like this to shield herself and she ducked and started laughing and said oh, I just didn't want, don't want to get struck by lightning and I've wondered where did that impulse come from you know to I don't really believe in God and then she's like oh, sorry there's something deep down that she does but I'm saying dear friends that increasingly there are people who claim to be atheists and God's people are not immune 
from the philosophies of men. We're bombarded with these ideas on a daily basis. And even mysticism and paganism, old ancient paganism, is making a comeback today. I forget if it was C.S. Lewis or some other well-known intellectual that said that before the second coming of Christ, there will only be two religions on this earth. Christianity, because it's exclusive, and Hinduism, or mysticism, because it's inclusive. It includes all. Christianity says that there's no God but the true and living God, and Jesus Christ, His Son. But Hinduism says that God is everywhere. In fact, God is within you. And it promotes this idea of looking within instead of looking outside of yourself. See, here's the basic difference between truth and error. Truth says that man's biggest problem is inside of himself and his biggest need is outside of himself. Error says your biggest problem is outside of yourself. It's your environment. It's what other people have done. And your biggest need is to be found inside of yourself. Your inner light. I want to tell you, dear friends, we've got heavenly light revealed to us in this book. And the ultimate salvation, salvation is not a matter of moving within yourself. Like Whitney Houston saying, the greatest love of all is learning to love yourself. No, my friends, the greatest love of all is that a man would lay down his life for his friends. Jesus Christ died in our room instead. God's love for poor sinners is the ultimate expression of love. But you see, our culture has a completely different message. The old devil who complicated the issues at the very outset, you remember in the garden, he, he said, you shall not surely die. He contradicted God's commandment. The old devil has continued to ply his trade and to market his wares in the world, and he continues to use the same old tricks. He just dresses them in new suits of clothes. And I'm saying we face grievous wolves. In the early days of the church, the Roman Empire put pressure on the Christians, increasing pressure to conform to the laws of the lands. And the Christians tried to be law-abiding, but you know, some of the rules and the laws that they had were violations of the Christian's conscience. For instance, emperor worship. If you're going to be a good Roman citizen, you have to swear by the genius of Caesar. You have to say Kaiser Curios, Caesar is Lord, and burn a pinch of incense before the bust of Caesar and pray to the pantheon, pray to the gods of the Romans. Well, I'm telling you, the Christians couldn't do that because it violated their conscience. So what I'm trying to say this morning, my friends, is wolves come from the outside. But you know the wolves that are the greatest threat to the church come from the inside. They come from those, as verse 30 says, also of your own selves shall men arise. Speaking perverse things. These are things that are perverted. That is, they are deviations from the truth. They are distractions. They have veered off course. Perverse things to draw away disciples after them. And when someone rises up within the Christian community and claims to have new revelation or a new insight that hasn't been discovered before, inevitably that person will get a following. He will draw away disciples after him. You see, the motives of these wolves that rise from the inside of the church are to market himself, his own brand, 
He's wanting to draw away disciples after him, and sure enough, he does it. And Paul says, therefore, watch. Now, by the way, in the early church, they did have from the inside Judaizers. That was the first threat that the New Testament church faced in the book of Acts. People that were still loyal to the old law, even though they had confessed Christ, and they were teaching that you needed to add Moses' law to the gospel. And Paul addresses this thought in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. I marvel. Now Paul expresses surprise. I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. He said, you've changed, you know, you've changed churches. You've said, here's another gospel. And Paul said, it's, it's not another. There's not another gospel. There's only one true gospel. One good news. One faith. One Lord. One baptism. So he said, you've changed to another gospel, but there's no gospel at all in it. But there be some that trouble you, he says to the churches in Galatia, and who would pervert the gospel of Christ. And if that was true in the first century, it's still true these 20-odd centuries later, my friends. Paul says, but though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. The word is anathema. Let him be anathema. He says, even if an angel from heaven... By the way, sometimes people say... An angel appeared to me. There's an entire branch of people that claim to be Christian. You may know they have their base or headquarters in two states, Utah and Missouri, the two different branches. And it all started with the appearance of an angel named Mormos to a man named Joseph Smith. Everything that he wrote in the Book of Mormon, he claims, was revealed to him by this angel. You know, when Paul said, though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you. He said, even if somebody claims to have supernatural revelation. By the way, you may know that the Quran was supposedly revealed to Muhammad in a cave by an angel. By the way, I could claim that I was visited by an angel and you wouldn't have any way of validating or verifying whether that was true. But there are people who are willing and ready to jump on board and to believe that. If somebody is effective enough in their presentation of it, there are people who will swallow it hook, line, and sinker. And what I'm saying to you today, my beloved, is don't be like that. As a pastor, my message to you is what Paul said. If I or an angel from heaven were to preach any other gospel to you than what you've received. Let that man be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, he said, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that which you've received, let him be accursed. Paul repeats it, and repetition in the Bible is for the sake of emphasis. This is that important, that it be repeated over and again. And what particular gospel did Paul have reference to? What particular gospel, air quotes, was troubling the Galatians, the idea that Jesus alone and his death on the cross was not sufficient to take you to heaven, but you also needed to keep the rules and regulations of Moses' law. 
You had to come to salvation the same way the Jews thought they did, through the law first and then the gospel. So you new converts that have just embraced the gospel, you need to go back and start keeping the law. You need to obey the law. Only good people go to heaven. By the way, there are so many people who believe that. Breaking news. There aren't any good people. The only people that are good have been made good by the grace of God. We preach the gospel of the grace of God, the good news that God blessed the unworthy, that we didn't merit our salvation. But you see, that idea, the Judaizing idea, legalism, arose from within the church. Paul says, of your own selves men shall arise speaking perverse things. By the way, in the late first century and into the second century, Gnosticism, not only Judaism, but Gnosticism, which was a form of ancient mysticism, arose. And you have some direct apologetic thrusts at Gnosticism in passages in your New Testament. For instance, 1 John 4, 6, when John says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits. Put them to the test to see whether they're of God. And here's the test. Here's the criteria for testing the ideas you hear. Any spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. In fact, it's the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard should come, and even now already it's in this world. But he said every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. In other words, the idea that anything material can't possibly be true. The Gnostics, you see were, again, Greek dualists. They were ancient mystics. They claimed that the material world was evil and only the spiritual was good. They rejected institutional forms, so they believed that it's better to worship in nature than it is in an artificial structure like a church building. Have you ever heard people say, I, I just feel closer to God out on a creek bank or in the mountains than I do at church? Well, I understand there is a connection we can have, but my friends, that's elementary school. You see, that's the natural revelation. We have special revelation. But the Gnostics rejected the verbal revelation of God in a book, and they said what really matters is your experience, your existential feelings, the inner light instead of the revealed light of truth in Scripture. The Gnostics, in other words were emotionalists, they were experientialists, they rejected institutional forms because they believed all matter was evil. And they rejected the idea that God would take on a human body. He couldn't become man. They denied that Jesus Christ had come in the flesh. That was Gnosticism. And Irenaeus, one of the early church fathers, wrote in 180 A.D., a book called Against Heresies to Refute Gnosticism in the Early Church. And then there came Arianism. The Arians taught that Christ was not truly God. He was not truly divine. And then Docetism, which taught that Christ was not truly human. He only appeared to be human. All of these heresies. I have a book in my library shelves at home called Against Heresies. And it talks about all of the Christological heresies, the anti-Trinitarian ideas that rose in the early church. My friends, Paul predicts that the day would come when the church would deal with wolves both from without and from within. Now, by the way, today we still have threats to the church. Cults, which claim to be Christian, which are not. 
You may remember a few months ago, we left our church building here and on the windshields of most of the vehicles in our parking lot were these little four color, well-produced pamphlets, you know, that claimed to teach us the real truth. And that was distributed by a group based in Jeffersonville, Indiana, just north of Louisville, Kentucky, that has a history of being a non-Christian religion. They claim to be Christian, but they have deviated. They're a doomsday cult is basically what they are. And they're followers of a man named Branham. Branham, by the way, once held joint campaigns with Jim Jones, the People's Temple in Guyana. Remember Jim Jones, the massacre, the mass suicide of people. But anyway, these are cults. They're still around. And by the way, university campuses are full of these cults. There are many groups there, and many of them are legitimate Christian groups, but there are many, my friends, that prey on the vulnerable, on young people that have moved away from dysfunctional homes to college, and they feel lost, and they need to belong somewhere, and they're easy prey for some of these cults. By the way, the cults are out there in our world today, and the internet is a freshly plowed field. It's a battlefield ripe for the battle. The internet is a place where everybody has a platform to promote their ideas, and many of them, you know, are not legitimate. Now, let's close by saying this. How can a shepherd protect the flock? And verse 32 explains it. I commend you to God, brethren, and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up. Here is our resource, our defense against the wolves that are trying to confuse us. Whether they come in the form of the cults, liberation theology, that's popular today, liberation theology. Many people are teaching that Christ was interested in liberating people from political chains. I'm telling you, Jesus came to save us from our sins from the penalty of the law, not from political oppression. But liberation theology is popular in our world today. Feminist theology is popular. Gender-neutral Bibles, I mean, they're plentiful. You can get one, you know. In fact, there was a popular book a few years ago called The Shack, in which God was pictured as a female. And it was spread around Christian circles. Anyway, it claims to be Christian, and a lot of people are just sucked into it. They embrace it uncritically. The Da Vinci Code promoted the ancient goddess cult theme, the sacred feminine, that masculinity is toxic, and that we need a kinder and gentler world. Now, understand, I, I love the heart of the woman as God made her, but I'll tell you, we also need the backbone of the man in our world. And by the way, there are threats to the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the inspiration, inerrancy, and authority of the Bible, the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, the doctrine of the bodily resurrection, the eternal punishment of the wicked. There are even threats, my friends, of false teaching that rise up among our people from time to time. So we need to be careful not to be uncritical in our thinking. We should never be unloving, of course, but the point that I make is the shepherd will protect the sheep, and the way that he does it is by feeding them the truth of God. Feed the flock. What are we to feed them with? Well, Jeremiah 3.15 says, I will give you pastors according to my heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. 
The word is the shepherd's rod for combating the wolves, and it's his staff for gathering and comforting and consoling the sheep. The need of the hour, my friend, is not clever preaching or beautiful sermons, but the faithful exposition of the word of God. The pastor is not primarily a motivational speaker, but he is a Bible teacher. And what people need the most, whether they realize it or not today, is the word of God, and anything less is a placebo. What a privilege it is to be entrusted with the life work of tending the flock of God. It's an opportunity for an under-shepherd like me to show my love to Christ. Simon, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. And when the chief shepherd returns, my friends, to gather his sheep into their everlasting safety in his heavenly fold, all the toil and struggle and hardship of the way right now will dissolve into endless glory and rest in his loving presence. When the chief shepherd shall appear, Peter says, you shall receive a crown of glory. Aren't we glad we have a shepherd over the flock? The chief shepherd, the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. It's my privilege to try to be an under-shepherd. I'm not always as Johnny on the spot as I should be. I try to have knowledge. You remember the four shepherds? Bunyan talked about knowledge, experience, sincere, and watchful. I try to fill the roles, but I often fall short. But the Lord is there to take up the slack and to take care of his own. May you be able to leave here this morning saying, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He is your loving shepherd. He watches over his own. Oh.